Today on the Scott Soap Podcast, we are in our series on the Gospel of John. John writes his gospel that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Enjoy and be challenged by the word of the Lord. Well, good morning and welcome to Scott's Hill. So glad that all of you are here. Those of you who are joining us in the Cross Point Center, let's give a shout out to those who are in the Cross Point Center this morning. Yeah. Thank you for being in there because we have displaced you from this room because of all of these students. We had our Elevate weekend, which was an incredible weekend. 240 plus students. Now, we have a challenge this morning, and here's the challenge. You guys have been up for a long time. Some of you got more sleep than others. Some of you are already wanting to sleep. And and you studied Hebrews chapter 12, and Hebrews chapter 12 said, let us run the race. Okay, so we're going to hold each other accountable. If somebody next to you is falling asleep when I'm preaching, wake them up. If you don't, I'm going to say, hey, wake him up right now. Well, you're not asleep yet, but don't do it. So, uh... (laughs) But here we are. So we're going to have a a great time together as we wrap up our weekend together and as we get to join with our parents and all of those who are in this room and those in the Cross Point Center. So glad you're able to join us. Many, many years ago, I read a story that has impacted me and stayed with me for so many years. It was a story of a little boy. He was at a beach setting. A huge storm had blown off the coast. And as a result of that, a lot of debris was washed up on the shore. But one of the things that were washed up on the shore were thousands and thousands of starfish from one side of the shore to the other. As far as you can see, starfish. And a little boy was out that morning and he was walking up and down that shoreline and he was picking up a starfish and he'd throw it in the water. Pick up a starfish and throw it in the water. Pick up a starfish and throw it in the water. And he kept doing that. And this older gentleman who was walking along that same shore saw the little boy and he watched him for a moment I'm going to ask him, what does he think he's doing? So he walked to the young man. He says, young man, what are you doing? The little boy just looked at him with a smile and says, I'm saving the starfish. And he's throwing them in the water. And the older man said, young man, would you do me a favor? Look down this way to your left. What do you see as far as the shore is? I see starfish. He said, look down here to the right. What do you see? I see lots and lots of starfish. Then the old man looked at him and said, young man, What possible difference do you think you're going to make in the lives of starfish? The little boy bent down, picked up one, threw it in the water and said, made a difference to that one. Picked up another one, threw it in the water and that one. Picked up another and that one and that one. And people heard him just walking up and down the shore saying, and that one. You see, the thing is, I don't know many people who don't want to make a difference in the lives of people. I don't know many people who wake up with this sense of a monotony and mediocrity and think, you know, all I want to do is get up every morning, eat the same breakfast, get in the same car, go to the same school or the same work, do the same thing, come home at the same time of the day, eat the same supper, get in the same living room, watch the same Netflix and binge out on the same social media so I can crawl in the same bed, wake up the next morning and do it all again until I take my last breath. I don't know people who want to do that. Most people want to make a difference in the lives of others. But sometimes we believe the lies of the culture of how to do that. Our culture says if you want to make the difference in the lives of somebody, you have to do something really great. You have to do something that nobody else is doing. You've got to accomplish something that's going to impact the masses. 
You've got to be an Instagram influencer or many followers. And then what happens is we buy into the lie and we think, if I can't do that, then I can't make a difference. And you know what we end up doing? We get up and we go to the same school, we eat the same lunch, we go to the same home, and we do the same thing over and over again, and there's a better way. I think the little boy found it, and we know that Jesus modeled it. Nobody made a greater difference in the world than Jesus Christ did. You know that? Nobody. He's made the greatest difference, but he didn't follow the social structure of how to make an impact on people. He was born in a poor home. He was a carpenter most of his life. He never ventured far from his home. He never earned a college degree. He never wrote a book. He never wrote a song. He never had a title given to him by men. And he never, as far as I can see, had a large Facebook following. He didn't have an Instagram following. He wasn't a TikTok phenomenon. He didn't have any tweets or YouTube page. Neither did he have a podcast. What did he do? How did Jesus make the difference? Here's how he made the difference. One person at a time. One person at a time. And when we look at the ministry of the Lord Jesus, we see how he makes an impact in people's lives. Jesus would not get caught up into the cultural thing of trying to make a big name, even though he is the son of God and the king of kings and the Lord of lords and the prince of peace. And he's coming back. But he did it one at a time. Think about the gospels. Zacchaeus, come down. I'm coming to your house today. One at a time. Today, as we continue in our study in the Gospel of John, we're going to look at how Jesus did this. We want to look at how Jesus had a concern for the one. So if you have your Bibles, open to John chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 1 and go to verse 17. So we're looking at 17 verses, John chapter 5. If you don't have your Bibles with you, if you have your devices, open those up, or you can turn your attention to the screen. Now, before we jump into passage, let me help you to know a couple of things. That this is a historical account what we're about to read. It really happened. But it's also a geographical account of where it happened. It happens in Jerusalem, particularly by the pool of Bethesda. And here's the other thing. It is not only that, but it's generational. It happened 2,000 years ago. But a lot of times when we read scripture, sometimes we think these things only impact the people that lived 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem and has nothing to do with me. But listen carefully, listen to me that the power and the presence of Jesus is as real today as it was 2,000 years ago. Time and distance and geography does not ever diminish the power of God in your life and my life. So this morning as we listen to this and we hear how Jesus was concerned about the one, here's what I want you to know. No matter where you are today, Jesus is concerned about you. No matter what you're going through, Jesus understands what you're feeling. No matter what you're trying to figure out in life, Jesus has already figured it out for you. And so as we look at this passage, we want to see how Jesus makes a difference in the one. Okay, let's begin in verse one. After this means after he had that, that encounter with the woman at the well in, in John chapter four and some other events that happened, that there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. This is the second time Jesus goes to Jerusalem. He was already there earlier. And remember, he made a big fuss because he drove everybody out of the temple. And he says, my father's house is a house of prayer. And so everybody was already against him. 
And from chapters five all the way to the end of this gospel, there's gonna be persecution of Jesus. They're coming at him until they crucify him. So from this point on, it is real, it is tough. And Jesus is continuing in his ministry. So he goes to Jerusalem. Now it goes on. Now there's in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda. The name in Aramaic, Bethesda, means um, um, an outpouring, an outpouring of mercy, in which there were five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. All of the sick people of Jerusalem were gathering in these two pools. Archaeology has recently discovered that there are, also, there are two pools in this area. One of the pools is 40 feet deep. There's an artesian spring that flows underneath it. Minerals come up. So all of these people around this pool because they're sick and they're looking for some kind of healing. They're invalids. They're people who are blind, people who are lame, and they're paralytics. This was a miserable place to visit. It was filled with sick people. I mean, these were sick people that had no cure. Now, let me tell you, this world, there was no safety net back then. There was no welfare system. There were no government handouts. If you were sick and you didn't have family members, you had nobody to take care of you. And so all of these people are gathered around these pools looking for an opportunity for healing. It was miserable. The hygiene was terrible. The disease and the sickness and the contamination was rampant. Spiritually elite people and upstanding people didn't go to these areas because they didn't want to be around all of these sick people. It says there was a multitude there, so we don't even know how many. Now, the question is, why are they there? Why are they there? Now, in some of your Bibles, your translation will skip from verse 3 to verse 5. It doesn't even cover verse 4. In some of your translations, it covers a another part of verse 3, and verse four, but they're in brackets or they're italicized. The reason they're like that is the best manuscripts that we have do not include those in the manuscripts. Some people think that some scribe was writing and he wrote these to clarify why the people were at the pool. But at any rate, whether it's not in the best manuscripts or it's in later manuscripts, it gives a good description of why they were there. And when you add the end of verse three and verse four, this is how it reads. And the paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain season into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. Now, that's not saying that happened. It's saying the people believed that happened. And all these people, here's what's happening. These sick people are gathered around this ancient jacuzzi in Jerusalem, right? And they're gathering around and they're waiting for an angel of the Lord to turn the jets on. And when the jets come on, the first one in the water is healed. It is every man for himself, every woman for herself. There is no politeness around here. Now, this pool is 40 feet deep. If you're blind and you jump in or you're paralyzed and you jump in, you better get healed because you ain't coming out. But they were believing this crazy stuff. And then there's always this guy on the back of the row, you know, all these people watching the water with intensity, seeing little bubble, anything shaking. And there's a guy on the back who's thinking, you know, if I threw a pebble in there right now, all chaos would break out. That would be me probably, but they were superstitious. Now you might say, now wait a minute, isn't that so silly? 
that they're so superstitious. They think an angel's really going to come around, stir the water, and all ready to jump in. Let me tell you, we might scoff at their superstition, but we have our own superstition in our culture. We have all kinds of ways we think is going to heal us. There are people who are in poverty, maybe because of their own foolish decisions. They're hanging out by the lottery pool, thinking if I could just get the right ticket, my life will be set. Then there's some people who are lonely. They're hanging out by the dating pool. If I can get the right date and that right person, then I'm going to be happy. Some people are hanging out by the possession pool or maybe the position pool. Some people are coming to church and hanging out with the pious pool. Because they're thinking, if I do certain things just right, then everything will be right in my life. And you want to know what happens? Those pools of the earth never satisfy your soul. They never do. So here are all these people. And then John tells us about one man. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. 38 years! You know, the average person in that day only lived about 55 years old. Some of them a little bit older. But the average person did not live very long. If you think about the fact that 38 years this person was an invalid, 38 years people had to carry him around, 38 years people had to feed him, 38 years he had to get all of his sustenance from other people who would come and help him. I mean, this man was in a bad shape. Now, we don't know if he's been at the pool for 38 years, but for 38 years this man cannot get up and walk and take care of himself. And in walks Jesus in the middle of this multitude. I want to show you five things he does that impacts and changes people. He does the same thing here today. Number one, Jesus sees the one. He sees the one. Notice verse six. It says, when Jesus saw him lying there. I mean, there's a multitude of sickness we don't know what a multitude is, but there's a lot of sick people. And Jesus walks in, and as he's stepping around, all of these sick people, there he is. There he is. That's him. You know those new cell phones where it blurs everything out except the focal point? It's exactly what Jesus did at that point. Sees the one. He sees this man, 38 years, crippled. Now, what we don't know is what Jesus saw about him. Some people will say, well, well, maybe he was sicker than others and Jesus saw an urgent need. No. Did Jesus look at him because he was more attractive than the other ones? No. Did Jesus look at this one man simply because maybe he thought he had the faith that would heal him? No. We'll find out later the man had very little faith. Why did Jesus look at the one? And here's the mystery of salvation. That in the midst of a multitude of people, that the Spirit of God can deal with the heart of one person. And no matter where you are right now, listen to me, he sees you. Some of you feel invisible right now. Some of you think nobody pays attention to me. Some of you might thinking I'm worthless. Some of you are thinking I've done all of these things that I know to do. I don't have any friends. I don't have any close relationship. I am just an invisible people that people walk past every day. But I wanna tell you, that's not true of the Lord Jesus. He sees you. He knows exactly where you are. And there's never been a time, listen, that he has not seen you because he created you. And from eternity past, you are someone that he has already seen. Here's the second thing Jesus does. 
Not only does he see the one, he knows the one. I love this. He knows the one. Look at the second part of verse six. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time. Now, did somebody tell Jesus this? Did somebody say, hey, you see this guy here? He's been here 38 years. Was it something revealed to him from the father? Or was it just the fact that he is God and he already knew this? We see all through the pages of scripture that Jesus knows things that nobody else would know and nobody told him. And Jesus knew this person. What did he know about him? I think Jesus knew three things about him. First of all, Jesus knew he was hurting. He was there for a long time. This man was suffering incredible pain. Now, we don't know what the, the extent of his affirmity is, but Jesus knew and he knew what he was going through. Not only that, Jesus not only knew he was hurting, Jesus knew that he was helpless. Look at verse seven. And he says to Jesus, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. I'm in this on my own. I have nobody to help me. I am helpless in this world. And the Lord knew his state of helplessness, but he also knew he was hopeless because the second part of verse seven says, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. Just when I think I can get to that water, somebody beats me to it. And now he is absolutely hopeless. He has no hope. He's given up 38 years of all of this. And Jesus walks in the scene. Not only does he see this man, but he knows him. He knows him intimately. He knows the hurts of his past. He knows that he is helpless in this world. He's hopeless. And unless something happens, this man can never change the state of his life. Some of you today feel like that, don't you? Some of you here are thinking, I've got no hope in this world. Some of you might be lonely and saying, I've got no help in this world. Some of you might be a place and saying, nobody really knows who I am. But I'm telling you today that the Lord Jesus knows you. He sees you. He knows you. I love what Psalm 139 says. He knows all our days before we're one day old, before you were ever born. Jesus knows every moment of your life. He knows every struggle. He knows every difficulty. He knows every question. He knows every pain that you are encountering. He sees the one. He knows the one. Here's the third thing he does. He invites the one. I love this. He invites the one. Now here's a picture. A multitude of sick people hanging out by a pool, every one of them looking at the water. Every one of them looking at each other. Every one of them jostling. And every time somebody says, oh, oh, there it is. Everybody moves up. And then they calm down. Oh, they move up. And Jesus walks in. He sees him. He knows him. And you can only imagine with sanctified reason, when Jesus comes to him, did he get down on his knees? And then he look at him eye to eye and then ask him the question, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? The man just looks at him. Do you want to be healed? Do you want me to help you? You're in this helpless state. I'm here. I can help you. Do you want help? Now, here's what's really odd. The man doesn't say, yeah, finally. Yes, my dreams are about to come true. Yes, somebody's here to heal me. He never says that. Never says it. What does he say? He says, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. He makes an excuse. 
Now, now, let me just say this. This is really crazy. If somebody came to you and said, do you want $1,000? And you said to them, well, I don't have any way to get to my ATM machine, and I only have $5.29 in my checking account, so I don't think I can help. If somebody asked me if I wanted $1,000, I would say, <laughs> yes! The man doesn't do it. Why does he say this? Perhaps the man had given up. Perhaps the man said, you know what? I really like being miserable. Have you ever met people who like being miserable? I have. I like being poor. You know, this is a pretty good gig in Jerusalem, begging for money. I get a lot of money out of this. I'm not willing to give that up. But I think the bigger reason is this. In the mind of that man, he thought there was only one means of healing. And it's in the water. And here is the son of God standing before him, the one who created him, the one that can speak to demons and be gone, saying, I'm your answer. How many times does the Lord Jesus come to people and he, he pleads with them, he offers the opportunity to heal them and people will turn it away and say, no, 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 no. You see, I'm working on my own behavior modification. I think I got this. You know what I think? I, th I think, no, I'm going to some classes to make me feel better about myself. Or, you know, I'm just going to work myself through it. I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps. I wish I had my boots on today. But we do the same thing. And Jesus says, no, 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 listen, listen. I'm the only one who can get you out of this. The systems of the world, the superstitions of the world, none of those things will ever heal you. And he comes to him and he invites him into this relationship with him. So Jesus sees him. He knows him. He invites him. Here's the fourth thing he does. He heals him. He heals the one. Now this is a very interesting passage because many people have different thoughts on this man. He didn't even know who Jesus was. Did he have any faith? We don't know. But Jesus looks at him and he gives him a command. Actually, he gives him three commands. And these three commands are, are right behind one another. Here's what he says. He said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. Now, he's telling the paralytic to get up. The most difficult, impossible thing that this man could do would just simply be to get up, okay? He tells him to get up. He tells him to take up, which means roll up that three by six mat that you've been living on. That's no longer going to be your life. That's your past. That doesn't define who you are. You pick it up, you roll it up, and you walk to me. You come to me. The word in the Greek for walking means literally walking about Jesus. In other words, get up, pick up, and walk to me. Here's what happens. John says at once the man was healed. It doesn't tell us he did anything. It doesn't tell us anything about his faith. He was healed and he took up his bed and he walked. I want you to notice the order of this. It doesn't say that he got up. It said he was healed. Then he took up. Then he walked. I believe that some scholars, and I agree with many of them, the faith came by his standing. It doesn't say he stood up. It said he was healed. And I believe instantaneously what we see there is when he stood believing the Lord Jesus, instantly he was healed. 
And what did he do? He took that mat three feet by six feet and rolled it up, put it under his arms because that no longer was going to define who he is. And he's going to walk away from that and walk to the Lord Jesus and pursue him. What a beautiful picture of what he did there. Now, the amazing thing is that he was healed instantly. Let me just say something about biblical healing right now, okay? There's a lot of false thinking about biblical healing. There are a lot of people going around calling faith healers. What we see in the Bible when it comes to healing, it is instantaneous and it's permanent. You don't see it any other way. There's nothing in the scripture that says, hey, you claim your healing. You go home. You keep agreeing with this. You walking this and eventually you'll be healed. The Bible knows nothing of that. And so what a faith healer will tell you is, listen, uh, you can claim this healing. You can go home and you walk in this. But if you don't get healed, it's your lack of faith. Then everything gets back on you. And here's the danger of that. The scripture teaches nothing of that because we see very little faith of this man. He doesn't even know who Jesus is. And yet he is healed instantly, permanently, and he walks. I want to tell you this morning, some of you, some of you, have been living in the misery of your failures and you've been living on a three by six mat and you've been reveling in those areas of your life and you love to talk about how miserable your life is and the Lord Jesus comes to you as a believer. He says, I've already taken care of that. I want you to get up right now and you trust me. I want you to roll up the failures of your life. You put them under your arm and you come and you follow me and you'll be free. And some of you are so locked to your mats that you can't break free. And some of you are wondering, what is there for me in the future? And there's nothing in the future on that mat. He's saying, get up, pick up, and walk to me. The man obviously does that. Now you would think there would be great celebration. All of these people at the pool no doubt heard what was going on. They see this man of 38 years getting up, rolling up his mat, and he's walking. Now, here's the thing. He's having a hard time finding Jesus because as soon as Jesus does a miracle, what does he do? He leaves. This is the Sabbath day. Jesus knows the religious leaders will be upset with him for healing on the Sabbath. So Jesus is gone from the picture. All of a sudden, the Pharisees show up. Jesus sees, he knows, he invites and he heals. What do the Pharisees do? Here's what the religious leaders do. They condemn the one. They condemn him. Here's what John says. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. They never saw the miracle. This man of 38 years lying at the pool of Bethesda crying out for help, gets up, rolls up his mat under his arm. He's walking, he's rejoicing, and the Pharisees are like, hey, 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 you can't carry that mat. You see, it was against the rituals and the restrictions of the Sabbath. It wasn't against the Sabbath itself. He was honoring the Sabbath. But the Pharisees made 39 rules to go around the Sabbath. And what you can't do, you can't make a fire on the Sabbath. You can't carry any possession on the Sabbath. You can't walk more than 1,500 feet from your possessions on the Sabbath. 39 different rules. And here's what happens. They never saw the miracle. All they cared about was their man-made tradition. Never saw the miracle. Here's a warning for the church. Listen to me, church. Listen. 
There are many times God does miracles in people's lives. Instead of us celebrating, we criticize it. We criticize it. You mean that person got saved? Ugh, I'll believe that when he preaches. You mean she gave her life to Christ? Do you know? There's no way. I don't even believe that. I'm not rejoicing with that. And what we end up doing is we're shutting down the miracles of God in people's lives instead of walking with them. Or how about this? They got saved at that church. You know, we really don't agree with the methods there. I just don't know how God could use that to lead somebody to him. And we never celebrate. Or sometimes people have residual effects of the old man. Aren't you glad that you're perfect? <laughs> that, that was not a serious question, okay? And sometimes people say, oh, well, they, they still do that? They still have a habit with that? They still do? Yeah. Because the process of salvation is lifelong. It's called sanctification. And then what happens is people end up being very critical. So they ask him, and the man answers. He answered to them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. Now, some scholars think he's blaming Jesus. <laughs> Don't blame me for that. Jesus told me to do it. Go after him. I believe what most scholars believe, that the man is thinking this. If he had the authority to heal me, then he has the authority to tell me I can take up my mat and walk. And I'm following him. And as a result of that, he's doing that. Then they said, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now, the man who had been healed did not know it was who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, and there was a crowd in that place. So Jesus pulls himself apart. And then the man is in the temple. And here's the last thing Jesus does. I love this. Jesus continues with the one. He doesn't just see the one. He doesn't just know the one. He doesn't just invite the one. He doesn't just heal the one. He continues with the one. And here's what John says happened. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Jesus is in the temple. Why is the man in the temple? Most believe that he was there to thank God for the healing that he received. He's there to worship God. And what does Jesus do? Jesus finds him and says, look, you are well. And then Jesus gives him this instruction. He says, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. This is a very difficult passage to interpret. What does it mean, sin no more? Some people say that his sin led him to his 38 years of infirmity. Some people say, no, 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 no. He's speaking about a sin of a lifestyle that can lead you from an eternal separation. That's the worst thing that can happen. In either case, Jesus didn't give up on him. And Jesus is continuing to walk with him all the way through. Have you ever felt that the Lord's given up on you? Have you, have you experienced the grace of God in your life and the healing of God? And you're walking along and still there are times where you just feel like you're in this life by yourself? And you're walking and the Lord Jesus finds you where you are? And he always brings you back to that relationship with him. I love that. He continues. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. Again, some people don't think very highly of this man. He went and ratted Jesus out now. Went to the Pharisees and said, look, 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 I got the name for you. Some scholars will say that's what he's saying. But notice what he didn't say. He didn't tell them who told him to pick up his mat. He told them who healed him. And so he brought the glory back to Jesus 
for the healing he had experienced. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And it ends like this. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. Here's what Jesus is saying. My father is constantly working. And the Lord Jesus is constantly working on the one, on the one. Did Jesus minister to multitudes? Yes, but in every multitude, there's the one. And in a room like this, and in a world that you live in, listen carefully, he is for the one. How does this relate to us? Let me give you three ways this relates to us. Number one, it is a picture of conversion. Every person who comes to faith in Christ experiences these things. Remember, Jesus sees the one. He sees you, and he has seen you from eternity past. If you're in Christ, he chose you in him from the foundations of the earth. There's never been a time he has not seen you. If you're in Christ, he knows you. There's nothing he does not know about you, nothing he has ever not known about you. In Christ, he is the one who invites you. In the multitude of people, in the multitude of crowds, the spirit of God begins to work in your life and it is he who convicted you of sin and judgment and righteousness and draws you to himself and he invites you into that relationship and he heals you. He forgives you of your sin. He places his own spirit inside of you. We see that he redeems you and he adopts you and he brings the meaning to your life and he continues always, never, ever leaving you. If you're a child of God, listen, he saw you. He knew you. He invited you. He has healed you and he is with you now. So it's a picture of conversion. But listen, here's the second thing. It is a point of calling. Some of you here today are not believers. You have never considered following Jesus. And you think you're in this life on your own, but I'm telling you right now, you're not. Because the Lord is here today and he sees you. He knows where you are. The Lord knows you and he knows what your greatest needs are and the emptiness and the desires of your heart. The Lord Jesus is standing in this place today inviting you to come and to pick up and to follow him and to surrender all that you have to him. And the Lord Jesus is here even now wanting to heal you and to forgive you and to redeem you and bring you into a relationship with him that will be an internal relationship. And he's also going to walk with you. He will never, ever leave you. The Lord Jesus is here and he's calling you to that place of healing. But there has to be surrender. Will you do it? Will you get up and say, I believe who you are? Will you be willing to turn your back on your past life and roll up that mat and tuck it under your arm and say, Jesus, I'm coming after you. I'm yours. There's a picture of conversion. There's a point of calling. But here's the third thing. 
I love this one. There's a pattern to cultivate. If you and I are children of God, here's what we need to see. Do you see the one? Do you see the one? Every day in the multitude of people, as a child of God, as you're going out into this world, are you tuning your eyes to those people who are empty? Students, you know what I'm talking about. The kid that sits at the lunchroom table by himself or herself and nobody ever talks to them. They're too uncool. It would hurt your reputation to go and sit with them. They feel invisible. Jesus sees them. Do you see them? The person that works next to you that is empty and needs somebody to speak to them, do you see them? Do you know them? Are you cultivating a relationship with them where you're wanting to get to know them and find some of the deepest questions that they may have, maybe about spiritual issues? Do you invite them? Do you give the opportunity to say, hey, I got a place. I want you to come with me. I want you to come to our student ministry. I want you to come to our children's ministry. I want you to come to our men's group. I want you to come to our church. And hear the message of the gospel. Do you share with them and tell them how Jesus has healed you and changed your life? And do you continue with them? You see, Jesus doesn't just do this to tell us this is what conversion is like. He's not doing it just to tell us this is what my calling in people's lives is like. This is the pattern that I want you to live by. I want you to see the one. I want you to make the difference in people's lives. And the difference is not going to be made in the crowd, in the masses, on a stage, with a microphone, but at a table drinking coffee, going on a walk, helping them with their yard, carrying groceries. See the one. That is particularly hard for us in our culture today. And let me tell you why. There's a new syndrome that's been happening in America. It's called the bystander syndrome. Have you ever heard of it? You'll know what I'm talking about. The bystander syndrome is this syndrome that says, I don't get involved, I just watch. And now with the advancement of phones, people record events. Have you noticed on the news, people recording people getting beat up and nobody helping? Record harrowing situations so everybody can see it go viral, but nobody does a thing to help? I was walking down the strip mall one day and this elderly lady was in front of me and she fell off the curb onto the ground. I immediately ran to her. I grabbed her and while I'm grabbing her, people are just walking by staring at me. People standing next to her, nobody helped her. And I'm like, what are you guys doing? And I, and I just looked at a person like, what are you doing? And she said, I don't know her. She walked right on by. Well, before we become too judgmental about that, how many times do we drive right past people who need help and we say, don't know them? A guy by the name of Kevin Carter was a world famous photographer. He was a group of, uh, of photographers known as the Bang Bang Club. They were known as the Bang Bang Club because here's what they did. They traveled all over the world, some of the most hostile areas, and they took photographs of some of the most gruesome things you have ever seen. They were down in South Africa for a long time. He's from South Africa. He'd take all of these pictures, but then he would take the pictures of all of these events and he'd just walk away. The one photo that landed him, the Pulitzer, the Pulitzer Prize, was when he was in the Sudan. 
He was in a place where kids and people were starving to death. And as he's walking down the road, he's taking pictures. He comes across a little girl who's about three years old. She is so malnourished that her belly is extended. She's on her hands and knees crawling to a feeding station. And in the background is a vulture waiting to eat her. He snaps the photo. He wins a Pulitzer Prize for it. It goes viral all over the world. He becomes a famous photographer. But then people start asking him, Kevin, what happened to the girl? I don't know. What did you do? I didn't do anything. You didn't help her? No, I just took the picture and I had a plane to catch. And people began to criticize him and condemn him for that. And just a month after he wins the Pulitzer Prize, he commits suicide because he didn't help. The name of the picture, don't do it now, is called The Vulture and the Girl. It's heart-wrenching. And we can look at that and say how disgusting. And I wonder with the responsibility that the Father has given to you and me as sons and daughters of God that it grieves his heart when we walk past people who are spiritually starving. We see them, but we keep going. We can make a difference in the way that Jesus makes a difference in me and you and the world one at a time. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to stand right now. Stand together. Those of you in the Cross Point Center, same thing. Stand. I'm going to close this in prayer. We're going to sing a song. You're going to go home and you're going to crash most of you. And then you're going to get up and you're going to pick up and you're going to walk and follow him. Because the one thing I know about the Lord Jesus is he will never, ever fail us. When he calls us, he's the firm foundation. And we can walk in that. But here's what I want to say this morning. If you're a believer, will you give thanks to God today for what he has done and how he has noticed you? If you're not a believer, will you consider the fact that Jesus sees you, knows you, is calling you even now? And you have a choice to find a pool to fall in and hope that it will heal you or to get up, pick up, and walk to him. You can do that today. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you so much for Jesus and the way he loves us. Father, we can never know this side of heaven how deeply the love that you have for us, that you would send your son and not only would he die, he would rise from the dead on the third day and he would send the spirit to indwell us that we might be like you. Father, for every believer in this room, would you remind us that where we've come from is not who we are, but we will run to Jesus. 
And Father, for those who are in this room this morning who don't have a relationship with Christ, I pray that, Father, right now, your spirit would do a work in their own hearts and their minds and they would surrender, they would yield. They would say, today, I surrender. Today, I give you my life. Today, I confess my sins. Today, I turn from them and turn to you. And today, I will experience your healing and your presence. If you're not a believer and you're willing to do that, would you just pray this prayer? If you've never given your life to Christ, but you're willing to do that, would you just say, dear Jesus, thank you for loving me. Thank you for seeing me. Thank you for knowing me. And right now, I surrender to you. I respond to your invitation by faith. And I get up. And I'm coming to you. Forgive me of my sins. I choose that you are my Lord and my Savior from this day on. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. And we hope that God uses this message in you to transform you more into the image of Christ. If you have any questions about our church or you want to learn more about Jesus, visit our website at scottsill.org slash next steps. Till next time.